Rare earth metals are the downstream raw materials that ultimately become upstream trillions of dollars in upstream GDP. Rare earths is a sort of a four or five billion dollar industry. These raw materials end up as in trillions of dollars in GDP. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, we're talking to somebody who specializes in rare earth metals. I know we talked to you specialists before, but they were predominantly focused on gold and silver. But when I came across Louis, his name is Louis O'Connor, and we'll introduce him in a second. But when I came across his profile, I'm like, you know what, this is natural resources, another big area that is going to be required moving forward for everyone to look at, keep an eye on and potentially own some. And that just goes beyond gold and silver. As you know, it's really my way of hedging the inflation, not necessarily beating the stock market. I don't buy gold and silver for that reason. But it seemed like there are aspects of precious metals or rare earth metals where we may be able to do that. So for that reason, we brought Louis O'Connor on the show here, and I'm delighted to have him. Louis, how are you, buddy? Thank you, Sakit. Of course. Very happy to be here with you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. You're darling from Ireland right now, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm Irish originally. I lived in Germany for 10 years and I lived in Latin America for another 15. Actually, awesome. I moved back to Europe to do this business that we're just about to talk about. It's a, it was a great awesome. opportunity, so much so that I left the sun, the tropical sunshine of Panama for the rainy winters of Ireland. The business must be good. Before we get into there, the way we usually open up our show is when you hear the word migrate to wealth, what does the word wealth mean to you? That's a great question. My first answer, it would encompass everything, um, health, meaningful relationships, um, being healthy in all aspects of your life, you know, um, yeah. having sort of your own way that being the person you want to be, you know, in terms right. of, you know, your relationship, with your family and your neighbors and your community, because the word begins with well, to be well. And I, I just think it encompasses everything in that sort of, uh, I know the connotation is with money and, and it's important to to build wealth and manage wealth. You know the term, your health is your wealth, right? So I think everything, you know, because if some of the important stuff is missing, like, do you ever hear this expression, second, like, you know the way they say money doesn't buy you happiness, right? Well, yeah. the thing is, it's true. I've met so many people that have loads of money and they're not happy. And I've met a lot of people that have no money and they're very happy. No, I agree with that. And Louis, we always look at on our show, we look at wealth as five key dimensions, right, of life, which I think you hit it all your mind, your body, your relationship, your money, and your contribution, right? These are important vectors in your life. And I like the way you said it. You're like healthy in all aspects of your life. We are healthy in terms of your money as well. And when we're designing, defining health as that specific vector in your life, when you're focusing on it, you're trying to excel on it. You're trying to do whatever you think is the best for that, right? And that yeah. criteria is so subjective. And that's why it's important to discuss that. It's because what means wealth to you could be very different what means wealth to me. And we're not talking about having a $5 million bank account or a $100 million bank account or a $2 million bank account. We're talking about wealth in holistic term. What means to you could be very different for me. And that could be because of the way we were brought up, the cultural nuances, where we lived, what we saw, did we see a lot of pain and all that stuff that determines who we are. So everyone's wealth journey is going to be different. So having said that, Louis, help us understand how did you 
migrate into the way you define the wealth, right? What was your path to becoming wealthy? Yeah, I suppose really it was, I mean, you touched on it there already. Um, Sackett was my upbringing. I grew up in Ireland. Um, I was born in 1965, so I'm 58. Uh-huh. So I uh, grew up during what we call the Troubles. You know, we've had English occupation in Ireland for 500 years. But when I was born, the English still occupied Northern Ireland, which they still do. So we right. had, you know, a war going on. And at that time, you know, let's say the 1980s, Ireland had just joined the EU for the first time beginning to experience foreign direct investment. But at the time I was sort of coming of age with 25% unemployment, we'd sort of bombs going off. Apparently sectarian war, a lot of people thought it was religious. It wasn't, it was more about identity. But either way, I was a young man and I thought, these people are all crazy. I want to go out and see the world, you know? (laughs) So I went to Germany and um, that was my real education in life came from living in other cultures, you know? Yeah. Went to Germany, thought I might stay six months or two years. I ended up staying um, eight years, got a very good job and sort of got promoted and was traveling. And of course, living in Europe, in Western Europe, you do realize quite early on that you're going to need to have a certain amount of money if you want to have a certain quality of life. Right. And if you want to have children and stuff. So, you know, I suppose I did realize in my twenties that I better start saving some money as well and not spending it all because it's needed. I mean, the utopia of living in this idea of a sort of utopian society, it's, really not possible i don't think not to get too philosophical about it but i mean we live in a world where there's enough sort of wealth and food in the world for that nobody should go hungry yet people go hungry right now correct Correct. i can't solve that i can only do what i can do for myself and my family and my community as you said service to the community is important as well but i think the reality is i mean if you want to have a sort of a happy life you do have to consider how much money do you want to earn? What type of lifestyle do you want to have? And and that's what I was thinking about my 20. So I bought my first property when I was 25. Mm -hmm. And then I had a goal to sort of create passive income from there on in. And I bought properties in Germany, Panama. And then I became more curious and interested in business and sort of a bit more entrepreneurial. So I eventually ended up in property, um, just like a real estate broker, but in Panama. When the U.S. administration left Panama, pretty much gave the canal to Panama. The U.S. administration built it and managed it, but then they very kindly turned it over to Panama. You know, I suppose they didn't have to. Most people don't. Right. I mean, I was there when it happened, and all these military bases and all the infrastructure, they just, you know, was given to Panama. There's been a great boom there, so I was there for that property for the first, till about 2015. Mm-hmm. And then Panama got very popular, and what happens when things get popular? Prices go up. Colombia now is the big place in Latin America. For North Americans, anyway, um, looking for maybe retirement, Colombia, Ecuador, where people are going. Awesome. And how did you move into what you do today? So it seemed like your journey has been very exciting, right? So you grew up in Ireland, and of course, you had the vision of traveling the world, which you have accomplished. You're still traveling, which is amazing. And then you started building your financial wealth through real estate, which was great. And you were in the right place at the right time. Then why switched to rare earth metals? What prompted you? What was that path for migration? Good question, yeah. 
Well, second, you said uh, right place, right time. There's a, there's a bit of luck involved as well sometimes, yeah. right? And I was lucky I bought property in Ireland at a time just before really over a 10-year period and went up. And the same happened in Panama from about 2005 to about 2015. We didn't really have too much of a crash in Panama 2008. Right. But anyway, yeah, I'll tell you what it was. was simply I have two daughters born in Panama, and I wanted to experience Europe as well, or Ireland in particular. And, yeah. you know, Ireland is part of the EU. There's 27 countries now. And the EU is a great experiment and a great idea. And it, you could say there's good and bad to everything. But one of the good things about the EU is, like in the last 100 years in Europe, we killed about 100 million of our own species over borders. Yeah. In the EU, we removed the borders and we haven't had more other than, you know, this Ukraine thing, but that's outside of the EU. Yeah. So you have 27 nations in Europe who have had peace and economic prosperity and unity. So I wanted my daughters to come back and experience that. And I hadn't lived in Europe in 20 years. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not going to go. Number one, nobody would really harm me because they go, where have you been, Panama? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was looking for a business opportunity. And, you know, it was in America where I came across these rare earth metals that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. At the Freedom Fest, I met a guy very well known in the U.S. for silver who told me about this German company who, to his knowledge at the time, were the only sort of industry supplier of these raw materials, which are in, right. they're in everything. They're in the devices we're using right now. They're in electric cars. They're in smartphones. They're in solar power, wind power, mm-hmm. aviation, rods and nuclear reactors. So they're basically the backbone of manufacturing in the 21st century. Right. Except prior to that, the only way you could invest was by maybe investing in a mine, you know. But this company we're about to talk about, they offer them to private investors. And that was my opportunity. So I went to see them in Germany, went to see the vault where they have all the storage in Frankfurt. You know, did my due diligence. And I asked them, could I be an agent for them, a broker for them for Ireland, UK? At that time, they only had a limited amount of brokers in Europe, but no English speaking. It was all German. So there was an opportunity coming up. That's why I moved back with some of my daughters could grow up here, but also needed a business and something to keep them in Because properties here are, I wouldn't buy property in Ireland at the moment. I would in Portugal or Spain, but not Ireland. It's too expensive. Right. Before we get into your business itself, let's talk about the asset class itself, rare earth metals. Just to make sure we bring all the audience at the same page, what is rare earth metal? What are they? Are we talking about lithium? We're talking about copper? We're talking about all of the above? And what's the difference? I'll ask you one more question, which is essentially combined. How are they different than commodity? Right. Help us yeah. understand the two of these things. So they differ from, um, say, copper and lithium and stuff. Well, the first thing is they're not available in abundance in that way, right? Secondly, let's call them the scientific term of what we're going to talk about are earth elements. And that's really an umbrella term for precious metals, technology metals, energy transition metals, defense metals. So... When you hear people say any of those terms or labels, they're talking about a group of metals. There's only 17 of them. We sell all 17 to industrial buyers. The only end buyer for these products are industrial buyers like Apple, Siemens, BMW, Volkswagen, any manufacturers. Now, here's what's very interesting about them is 
you could actually technically say they're a recycled material. And this is what makes them complicated and sort of expensive, but smart as an investment is unlike copper or aluminum or say zirconium, they don't occur naturally in the earth's crust. Mm-hmm. So they're always a byproduct of the mining of another raw material. To give you an example, gallium is a byproduct of mining aluminum. Okay. Um, Aphium is a byproduct of mining zirconium. And here's what makes it interesting. For every 50 tons of zirconium, you'll only get one ton of hafnium. That's what makes wow. them limited and, well, subject to sort of disruption and, and limited in supply. Got it. And who came up with these 17 only? Why not 10? Why not 5? Is there a consortium? Is there a group that defined these terms and defined what metals belong to this category? Yeah, you know, as I said, they would have been just a byproduct of other mining um, because, you know, most metals are sort of very rare. You'll find something in its purest form and they sometimes have to be extracted and separated and refined. So for many, many years, they were just wasted, not wasted. There was no use to them. What happened in the 1960s when we went from black and white TVs to color TVs is when we really started to use them. They're in the screens of color TVs. So there wasn't a huge use for them. And until about the 1980s, the U.S. was producing 60%. The U.S. was the largest producer in the world. China now is the dominant market leader. They process 90% of the world's rare earths. And I'll just give you an early signal of what we're going to be talking about is China understood before the U.S. and before Europe that they were going to be the backbone of manufacturing in the 21st century. They just knew they were mm-hmm. thinking 25 years ahead because technology was coming, right? Just you remember back in the 80s, no, you know, nobody yeah. had a smartphone, nobody had anything. So they just saw we've moved into the technology age. So they sort of recognized this early. Now, one thing as well, we call them rare earth metals, but they're not that rare. There's one mine in the U.S. producing the Mountain Pass in California, um, Vietnam thinks they have plenty and Australia do. But as I said earlier, what makes them complicated and messy and expensive, it's you have to extract them, you have to separate them, you have to yeah. refine them. That's, that's expensive and not easy to do. And China's about 30 years ahead of the rest of the world. So there is only 17 because that's what's been discovered. There is no more. Got it. But you might find them all together and you don't have to extract them. And so geologists and metallurgists over time have identified which one is which and given them names and stuff. When you say China is 30 years ahead, 30 years ahead of what? In terms of their technological advance on processing these rare earth elements or in terms of the production capacity? What are they far ahead in? Okay, good question. So... um, China has about 50% of the world's reserves, so, but um, there's plenty in Australia, Africa, Vietnam. Sweden thinks they have about a million tons north, you know, near the Arctic Circle. But So what happened was in the 1980s, the U.S. was producing and refining about 60% of the world's rare earths. Mm-hmm. And you're probably familiar with this. For a period in time, the whole world was in love with, was it high nearly on the drug of globalization. Yeah. We went global. Right? Yeah. But we sort of forgot that what that, you know, we didn't maybe see too far ahead that is it a good idea to rely on one country for one product? And what happened was China saw this before. So they 
sort of legitimately moved all the processing of these raw materials to China. Mm-hmm. And the American government, and this is a fact, Europe is no better. Time. I'm only talking about the US because, you know, the, your audience is mostly yeah. North American, but Europe didn't fare any better in this. They thought, well, you know, why don't we let the Chinese, I mean, first of all, China outpriced America because of their labor costs yeah. and insurance. They were able to produce them for less money. So they just priced everybody else out of the market and took it over. At the time, the US government made a decision to allow China to do that because they said, we'll just buy them, you know, less expensively from China for our manufacturer. They set up in the US, people can Google this, they'll see it. The US set up uh, the Bureau of Mines to sort of keep an eye on China, make sure America remained competitive. But what happened was that Bureau was defunded in 1996. And since then, China's just ran away with it, if you will. Now, here's why it took China a generation to get where they are and why it'll take us probably 25 years to catch up is the specialty for this is called metallurgist. China has 39 universities graduating Mm. degrees in critical minerals. So the Chinese have been graduating about 200 metallurgists a week, every week for the last 30 years. Wow. To give you some Next, there's about 300,000 metallurgists in China. There's maybe 400 in America. So the human capital, the engineering expertise is not in Europe or the US. And that project I mentioned in Sweden, they've just announced that. If that even goes ahead, if it gets approved, if it goes through all the, it'll still be 10 or 15 years until the, the product is actually available. And that's why... They're a very good investment. Now, they outperform gold and silver. Demand is increasing, especially with this energy transition to electric cars, um, to wind, to solar, and China controls the market. And they have big plans. China has big plans of themselves for electric cars, for wind, for solar. What a lot of people don't know is less than, or maybe half of China is on the grid. China is bringing hundreds of millions of people from sort of poverty into the middle class you know, every decade or so. And yeah. there's still a long way to go. So what's happened in the position we're in today is we in the West stand in line for what China will sell after they satisfy their own quotas. So, Louis, that's an interesting one, right? Because, of course, the whole geopolitics where this is going, where between the China and the, between the yuan and the dollar, between China and the US and the rest of the world, there's a whole push and pull war going on right now not in the real terms, but more metaphorically speaking, where is the rare earth elements, the strategy? Because it seems like, and tell me if I'm wrong, most industries would collapse if they don't have the rare earth elements, unless they have a plan B, which I don't think at this point anyone has. Because we saw during the COVID, right, just because of us, just because people didn't have, the companies didn't have the chip, they couldn't produce a car, they couldn't produce anything else, right? A lot of these things were in shortage because of that. So you can only extrapolate that in these 17 elements, which are probably, we're talking before we end on air, your phone has 12 of those. Um, Say you can't have a smartphone without those elements. So what is the strategy before we go into the investment at the macro level? Is there a plan B for something like that? Because it seemed like if China controls it, we don't really have, unless we have a plan B, we don't really have an option than just being staying dependent. Second, you know, we've only just met, but well, you should be on CNN or CN, CNNBC oh. <laughs> as an invest, investigative journalist because every answer I got, you're like a sort of um, 
one of these you know one of these dogs they train to to find truffles like you're you're right on top of it <laughs> Oh thank you. Know, you. I don't think they want me there. I don't think they want me there but yes, I take that as a compliment. Thank you. They have the wrong people. But you nailed it. You nailed it, right? Now, what I suggest to people is read an article that's in the Guardian newspaper, British edition, and it's called Cold War 2.0. Mhm. And the guy talks about the fact that the next cold war, like tensions are escalating between China and US and other countries. Yep. It was just in CNN this week um defense secretary i think of the secretary of state of the us anyway right. he, yeah. he was over in china this week to try and de-escalate tensions because there is no plan b and just to give you an example oh sorry to finish that quote what the guy said was the next cold war won't be an arms race it'll be a semiconductor race what the people don't know why would the us and china be willing to go to war over taiwan It's right. because of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. 92% of the best semiconductors in the world come from Taiwan. Okay. The other 8% come from South Korea. The technology comes from the US, Holland and Japan. Now, just as we're speaking in the last month, if people Google what they'll see is that US, Holland and Japan have got together and said we're going to restrict that we're going to ban the technology We're not going to allow US companies or Japanese companies to to sell this technology to China because they can weaponize. I mean mm-hmm. semiconductors are in everything, car engines, computer. That's what really runs the world now. So again, this is real. I mean, people can anything I say if I quoted a, a journalist or even I'm going to about I'm going to quote Deng Xiaoping who was the premier of China in 1987 standing on a rare earth mine said The Middle East has oil, China has rare earths. That was a very mm. shrewd prediction. If you Google less than a month ago, the EU said rare earths are fast becoming more important than oil and gas. Now, mm. what just happened in, in with Russia? Europe is very dependent on Russia for oil and gas. So in Europe we're now accelerating our energy transition to yeah. wind, solar and electric cars so we can be wind that dependence away from Russia. So regrettably the world got sort of high on globalization and now they realize it wasn't such a good idea because yeah. you know you can't just be reliant on one source. Look, I'm speaking purely from an investor point of view. Of course. You know this is not really good news. If you're an investor, if you're holding these commodities that we sell, you're going to make money in the next 5 or 10 years. Let's get a recap. I think what we've talked so far is that rare earth metals are actually at same par as oil right because the world cannot run without energy the world cannot run right now the way the world is today it cannot run without rare earth elements your basic home right. goods are made have I mean, your car your phone stuff like that your electronics most of them already have that items right now can there be a plan b in the future maybe who knows and we're not going to predict that here but as of now then our dependence on rare earth metals is as high as it's on oil today and now going really looking at the power is in the hands of china today from what you're saying and i have no reason to disbelieve you what's happening in that case is when the tensions get high and they will because it's in chinese interest i would think that not making this a geopolitical statement but if they control the resources they want the power so if the shift happens in that direction 
the U.S. would have to figure out a way to procure these rare earth elements. And now we go into yeah. the, as an investor, yes, if you're a U.S. citizen or a European and all that stuff, is it good for Europe? You good for U.S., good for this, good for that. We can have the debate, we can have that argument, and that's a valid argument to have. But the conditions of today, a lot of the topic we're talking about is creating financial wealth and figuring out where the next opportunity is. I know there are policies, there are powers beyond us who will make those determinations and figure out what we need to do as a society. But specifically talking about the vector of money, you're now looking at where are we going to be supply constrained? And if you invest in aspects that are supply constrained, which is real estate, that's why it's such a great asset class. It could be oil, it could be rare earth metals, because when the supply shrinks and the demand is not shrinking, that means the pricing is going to go higher, Right. And that's really what I want to do is I want to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor and then we'll get back. And now we're going to talk about how do we take advantage of that supply demand dynamics and use it as an investment vehicle to grow our wealth. So we'll be back soon. My great to wealth listeners, if you want to manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial cap and gain taxes. One option that may help solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange. Because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes, and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches involved with being an active landlord. Ray DeWitt is a managing director with Bangtanger Financial Services, and his goal is to help you understand all the rules associated with the 1031 exchanges. To learn more, visit their website at bantangerfinancial.com and browse the library of education material. Please be sure to see the disclosures and show notes. Thank you again for tuning in with us again. So far, what overall macro of what's happening in the rare earth metals and how they compare to asset classes such as oil and maybe the real estate to a certain extent. What we heard from Louis was, this is the next oil rare earth metals, rare earth met elements, as the next set of an oil comparative because who controls the natural resources will control the world, as who controls the oil controls the world. In terms of not control the world and it's, they're the most powerful, but more the economic forces, the world's going to be dependent on them, right? So, Louis, with that backdrop, I want to understand is there is a probability of us being supply constrained on the rare earth elements is pretty high because there's one country that controls a lot of it right and if they just like we're seeing in the russia ukraine war europe is suffering because of the dependence on the oil in russia so will the entire world will suffer because if something were to happen in the chinese economy for whatever reason they shrink that the export of rare earth metals right the whole world's dependent on that So now let's talk into what's going to happen to the demand. If that happens, is the demand, do you see demand shrinking at any time soon? And if not, what does that do to the pricing? And let's take oil as an example or something else as an example so we can do some comparative analysis. Okay, so as far as demand goes, it's sort of unfathomable nearly. I mean, you know, the truth of it is actually, I don't think there will be enough rare earths to sort of fulfill the Paris Agreement, I think that was signed in 2015, mm-hmm. to meet these climate change targets. I mean, that's why we're going through this energy transition, right, to electric cars, wind and solar. But I'll give you one example, like one small country in Europe, Austria, 9 million people. Mm-hmm. In order for Austria to meet its sustainable goals, it would need 
four to five times the current global production of gallium alone. Wow. Just for that country, right? So there's not going to be enough. For example, we won't go fully, we'd like to go fully electric, but we won't. Yeah. I mean, as you, you know, as well, we don't have the infrastructure yet, either in Europe or the US, for everybody to be driving an electric car. We're heading there, and I'm sure we will get there. I and, you know, any people who are listening and who want to maybe learn a bit more are lucky enough to find out that um, the raw materials that are needed for this energy transition are available now as an asset class. So there will be no end to the demand. It's just the demand will not be met. Now, what I said earlier, though, is important that there are rare earths in North America, but they haven't had an industry in 30 years. So two things have happened in the last six months in Europe and the US. The US announced the Inflation Reduction Act Somebody wants to look at what they say about the the U.S. is now offering billions of dollars in subsidies for private industry and investment in the U.S. to mine right. rare earths. They have to wean the dependence off China. Europe introduced a very similar act called the Critical Minerals Act. And one way to look at it would be, Sackett, is there's, there's, there's not necessarily a shortage, but how much more money will it cost somebody in the US in comparison to China, right? Their labor costs are higher. They're going to do it much, you know, obviously sustainability and yeah. safety. Regardless of what happens over the next, to give you an idea, the estimate for when the demand will peak for energy transition metals is the 2040s sometimes. So that's another 20 years. Right. So for the next 20 years, what's going to happen is China will keep producing and it's really not a geopolitical strategy with China. It's just economics. They need them for themselves. And they right. satisfy their own as first. They have big, big plans, you know. So the rest of the world, we will see production. And in fact, I heard recently that the second largest producer is Linus Corp in Australia. And they do some refining in is it Cambodia, maybe. I'm not 100% sure on that. Don't quote me on that. But um but Linus just in agreement with the U.S. Department of Defense to build a refining facility in Florida. Hmm. So over the next 10 or 15 years, the West will sort of, we just don't have a choice because these semiconductors, right. they run the world. They rule the world. And if we don't have them, I mean, car industry, modern technology, hmm. everything could just, you know. So we'll see some changes. You'll hear of probably maybe some production in the U.S. Like at the moment, Mountain Pass in California, they have to sell all their rare earths to China so they can be refined. There's no refining mm. facility in America at this moment in time. God. It will be in 10 years. It's not the end of the world. It's not a doomsday proclamation. But I just think we don't probably have enough. So nuclear power will still, we'll be still using all of these options. We're not going to go fully green. I think that's a lie because I don't think we can. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the infrastructure. Right. But we will certainly use as much rare earths as we can because they're greener and they're safer and they're better for the planet, you know. But either way, whatever way it plays out, prices are going to continue to rise because demand is rising and other countries will find it more expensive than China to produce. Now, Louis, when we do produce, let's talk about 10 years from ahead, from today. And let's say the U.S. now have the production facility, the refining capabilities and all that good stuff which I don't see a reason why we can't have it, we should be able to. Do you see a price drops at that point? 
what happens? I know 10 years is too far to predict. Or do you continue to see because of the labor cost and technology costs and land cost and everything else in the US, even if we could bring that in-house, the pricing is still going to stay up. What is your crystal ball telling you? Okay. Well, demand is so high. You know, again, the prices are purely driven by supply and demand. And when you have increasing demand, limited supply, and also supply is subject to disruption, generally that equates to prices going up. But they can be dropping price from time to time. It's not, I would say the rare earths is a sort of an opaque industry. It's not that transparent because political motivations are playing more of a part subsidies are coming in trade wars so it's hard to predict except one thing you can predict is in the long term like historically i could show you the charts here and people can find them themselves just to give you an idea if you'd invested if you'd bought one kilo if you'd say invested a hundred thousand dollars in metals we offer five Uh years ago you'd be up 34.25% 34.25% a year, every year. So your portfolio will be up 170%. Right. Now, twice during that time, there, were some, there was some volatility where the prices dipped quite considerably. But as long as you're in, like, you know, last September, I had one client who bought a metal, just one metal, and it went up 190% in one year, but it went up 90% in the first five months the client owned. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but it can happen. But anyway, our suggestion to our clients is to take an extreme view, long-term view, meaning we're not telling people to do this, but we do strongly suggest if you buy rare earths, keep them for at least three to five years, even 10 years might be better. You'll see some very, very good returns because historically you can see our clients are yeah. receiving good returns. And Louis, when you're investing in a re- in rare earths, are you talking about investing in the mining operations, resource operations, you're investing in buying a, an ounce, a kilo or whatever? How do people play in that environment? Or they buy a stock in a mining company? What do they do? Or okay. all of the above? Yeah, okay, sorry. My daughter's just gone off to a concert there. Waving All right, the no problem. So, um, her first concert, you know, it's an American Caesar girl rapper awesome man i'm sure she'll have a lot of fun yeah she's here in dublin so she's she's all excited she's 13 she's going with my brother and her cousin the best way to look at it is the same paradigm as owning gold or silver so our clients Mm -hmm. physically own the assets we sell and now what i'm about to tell you second is probably the most important thing of everything we say which is if i was just a sales and marketing company some crazy irish man in tipperary with this idea Mm -hmm. So we buy these metals from China, we store them, and then we sell them to the U.S. Department of Defense. Red flags everywhere. This guy is nuts, right? right? Because I've no connection to the industry. The U.S. Department of Defense need three-quarters of a ton of rare earths in one F-35 fighter jet. They're not going to just buy them from anybody. They only buy them from reputable suppliers. So that's what you need to know and your audience needs to know about us, which is our core business. This investment that we're talking about is our side hustle. I'm mm-hmm. using an American term. I don't say that to diminish it or minimize it in any way, but our core business, what we're doing 80% of the time is we buy metals from producers, mostly in China, and then we resell them to industry buyers, to factories, to car manufacturers. And uh, we've 2,480 clients in 70 different countries. 
This is the industrial side of the business I'm talking about. If we didn't have that, then what I'm talking about wouldn't be safe. The only reason we can offer this safely is because we're in the industry. We can guarantee you're buying industrial-grade gallium or hafnium or germanium. Another part of that is only somebody like us will know the purity levels needed for an F-35 fighter jet or a Volkswagen engine. So we know the purity levels that are needed. Um, the other thing, chain of custody. No industry buyer will buy rare earths if the chain of custody is not intact, which means the metals must be in the original packaging from the producer. Mm-hmm. If they're not in the original packaging, they won't even buy them from us. So there's these little nice. things people will know that only we can tell them, you know. And then, of course, lastly and most importantly is the exit. Because we're selling rare earths on a daily basis to industry buyers, we then mediate the sale for the investor. So we sell the rare earths to the investor. They keep them three or five years. When they want to sell, they come to us and we sell them. And there's a spread. We charge not, we, we make our money on the exit, which is we'll offer market value minus 10%. Got it. When they're buying, there's no premium or there's a premium attached to the buying as well? Well, no, the principle, if you will, of the German metals traders, they want the buyer, the private investors, their prices to be aligned with industry buyers. So they're not paying any more or any less. Now, not to say that there's not profit built there, but there's no additional. The main spread is on the exit and it's minus 10%, which is if you're buying minted coins and stuff, it's about similar to that. But but what you're yeah. getting for that 10% is you're basically being invited to participate in the supply chain. You have a link into the industry. And you know, the great thing about it as well, Sakat, which is rare earth metals are the downstream raw materials that ultimately become upstream trillions of dollars in upstream GDP. Rare earths is a sort of a four or five billion dollar industry. Ultimately, these raw materials end up as in trillions of dollars in GDP. Right. And they're critical right. and irreplaceable. So you've even heard, I think, Elon Musk say that. He said, sure, invest in Tesla. He said, but invest in the raw materials we need for our cars too. And that's really what we're offering. Got it. Got it. And Louis, give us an approximation. When we're buying something from, an investors are buying something from you, are they buying a portfolio of rare metals? Are they buying a specific one? How do they, because most people won't even know sure. the names of these 17 rare earth metals that we just talked about, rare yeah, earth exactly. elements that we talked about. So they can't leave aside making a judgment call on which one is the right one. So how does that work? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so look, I mean, people have to sort of educate themselves. But I mean, our website, which I'm sure I mentioned at the end, like we have detailed information on each metal. So the 17 rare earths, right? We offer all 17 to industrial buyers, but seven of them are not relevant as physical assets because there's mm-hmm. no shortage of them. Some of them are, and um, there's plenty of supply, sure. and there's not so much demand. It doesn't make sense to buy them as an asset. They're mm-hmm. usable and they have applications, but not as an asset. So there's 10 that are considered relevant as physical assets. Those are the ones we offer. Our yep. minimum investment is only $10,000. And actually, for about $14,000, a client could buy one kilo of each one of those metals. And then they would be invested in modern technology, aviation. Do you know where the big area, two big areas where there's going to be growth is 
energy transition. So there's four or five metals that are needed in electric cars, wind turbines, solar, and the sort of space exploration is becoming mm -hmm. a fully fledged space industry over the next 30 years. Hafnium, right, went up 190% last year. Why? Because the aviation industry bounced back after COVID, right. you know, Boeing, Airbus got massive new orders, and the space industry also put in huge orders. So as I mentioned to you earlier, hafnium is a byproduct of zirconium mining. You can only mm -hmm. get one ton of hafnium for every 50 tons of zirconium. So they're not going to produce or increase production of zirconium just to meet a higher demand in hafnium so the prices go up, you know. But I'll educate people. I talk with all my clients and what they could say to me is they could be interested in a particular industry. They say, I'm interested in energy transition metals. Then I'll tell them which four they should invest in. Got it. Or they might say, I'm interested in aviation and space industry or technology. So it's up to them. They can buy one metal or they can buy all 10, but we'll help them getting informed. The best thing to do is diversify and buy every metal because then you're... And you said from 14K total, they can buy a kilo of all 10. Did I hear you correctly? One kilo of each one, yeah. We're not saying 14K each, 14K in total. $14,000, you can buy 10 kilos yeah. worth of rare earth metals yeah. and basically buy all 10 that would diversify yeah. their industry risk as well, correct? That's what you said? Yeah. For example, dysprosium and praseodymium are only $142 a kilo. Terbium's up to about $5,000 a kilo, went up 500% in the last five yeah. years. So, yeah, some of them are not so expensive. Um, they're powder. They're the oxides. So they come in different forms, metal, oxide, nitrate, and liquid, you know. And where would they um, yeah. store it? Would they store it with somebody like you? Would they store it in their house? Where would they store it? Are they allowed okay. to store it in their personal possession? We recommend, we have a sister company. The business is fully owned by one family, and they also built a vault. I'll tell you, the rare earths have only been available to private investors since 2010. How the business came about was the family in Germany who are metals traders, three generations. What happened was the industry buyers started to ask them about storage. So they mm -hmm. bought... A vault. Well, it wasn't a vault. It was a bunker in Frankfurt in World War II. It was an underground bomb shelter that had survived World War II and the Cold War. And they converted it to a bank-level secure vault, you know, armed security, three-meter walls. So they bought the facility to store for their industry clients. And then they just, being entrepreneurial, thought, well, why don't we offer private investors? Because we it. can guarantee quality of metals, and then we can also liquidate them. Now, we recommend you store with us. But at the end of the day, when somebody buys the metals, they could move them to Switzerland, they can move them to Delaware, they can move them to Singapore. But it's not a good idea. And I'll tell you why. Because one, it's go you're going to pay transportation costs. You're probably going to pay some taxes. And you're moving them out of the chain of custody. So technically, they right. less industrial supply chain. What that means is when you come back to us in three years to sell them, they'll have to be retested. Because right. no industry buyer will buy them from us if they've left the chain of custody, you know? So sure. it wouldn't make it impossible to liquidate them, but it'll make it costly. So again, none of our clients have stored elsewhere. And also it gives you that high liquidity. If you wanted to sell, if you came to me on a Monday and said, I got this great deal on a property, I need to buy it, I'm gonna sell my metals. We'll make you an offer that day. And if you accept the offer, 
you'll sign a sales contract within three to four working days and you'll have your money within 10 days. Got it. And Lloyd, in terms of the third party kind of risk, right? So let's just say something happens to your company and you're doing it. I know you're storing it for your investors, but something does happen and the company goes belly up for whatever reason. I hope not, but it happens and it can happen. How are the investors protected for that? Well, the metals in the vault are fully insured for war, explosions, theft, fire. I mean, as much insurance as you can humanly get, right? Mm-hmm. Now, any business can go out of business. You're right. All I can tell you there really is the business is as solid as any business can be. I mean, in its current structure, it was formed in 1999. So they've been in business for nearly 25 years. They've mm-hmm. held an ISO 9001 quality management certificate consistently since 2003. Sure. Recognized globally as a German, you know, German companies as well have, you know, great, yeah. great name. So it's as safe as any business can be. And then I suppose the other thing on top of that is they sell a product that's hugely in demand that yeah. there's no way demand is going to in- decrease anytime okay. soon. It's just not going to happen because these are the raw materials for the 21st century. I can't definitively say they're not going to go out of business because I can't mm-hmm. tell the future. They're in a very, very good business and they've been in business a quarter of a century. Awesome. Well, Lois, this has been very insightful for me because I don't understand rare earth metals. So I think this is actually rare earth elements. I keep calling the metals rare earth elements. I'll get my yeah. taxonomy correct here. Thank you for enlightening us with all the information, sharing the insights. I think it's something that everyone should look into. I really appreciate that. We're coming towards the end of our show. We always end our show with two key notes. One of that's going to be, Louis, if you were to go back to your 20-year-old self, the guy who you were when you were trying to make your mark in the world and travel around and all that good stuff, what insight would you share with that person today to make their migration and life more intentional? I think first principles, there's laws of nature, you know, there's cosmic laws out there. There's law of gravity we don't mess with, you know, and there's universal principles you'll see in all, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Catholicism, and they all sort of say the same thing. And I think I'm not a religious person, but I have a spiritual practice. In that practice, there's the right way to live. And I learned the hard way sometimes, you know, as we all do, that... I would substitute the word God, say, for great reality or life or creative intelligence. Call it what what you will. But if you go against that, you Mm -hmm. lose and you lose badly anytime. So my sort of principle today is I'm not in the results business. I used to think I was. I'm in the planning business. And I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But what I need to focus on at all times if I'd known back then, rather than look at maybe what the result is going to be, what's the next right thing for me to do right now? Not just for me, but for everybody. And focus on that. And then in a way, I don't have to worry about the outcome because I know it'll be good. And again, I think if we go against those sort of principles we suffer, you know, um, there's a very good sort of Native American term or expression it talks about poison and poison is more too much of anything if we desire too much money or too much fame or power or alcohol or whatever it might be we suffer and so just getting that principle right 
from the very beginning is just do the right thing. You know, what's the right thing to do right now? And it's not that self-centered right thing. It's genuine. Look, you have to be as well in a business and an industry that you like and that is of value. And if it is, then you're in good shape. Correct. I love that answer. And it's very thoughtful. I think it's also reflective on kind of like how to live a life. And that doesn't need to be just for a 20 year old. It's actually true. The same insight's true for everyone now, because yeah. they're too late if you've not lived that way. Next question, Louis, is what's your wish and desire for the humanity as a whole to migrate towards? I think it's Rumi said, you know, yesterday I was smart and I wanted to change the world today. I'm wise and I'm going to change myself. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. I can only do what I can do. I can't change the world. I have to work on myself. If everybody was doing that, that's sort of an awakening. You know, Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about that, that there's a lot of people that are just sort of unconscious. The Buddhists use the term confusion. They don't really say people are doing right or wrong. They just, people are confused. Jesus said it on the cross, Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. He was saying they were unconscious. Again, all the great universal teachers say the same thing. But ultimately, it's up to me. And I can't just come to you now and say, hey, I don't even know if you are religious, Saket, but Catholicism is the way to go. You know, you need to come over to our side. There is no us, there is no them. And I can only do what I can do. And that frees me up then not to try to change anybody, but to make sure that, that I'm aiming for the man I want to be, you know. I love that, Louis. I think that's such, such such an insightful answer, right? Kind of like focus on you, change you. It's easy to find flaws in somebody else. Very easy. But yeah. self-reflection yeah. is probably way more important so you can become a better person and in turn make this world a better place. Yeah, and achievable. And it involves self-examination and looking at your motives regularly. And for me, I have to have a spiritual practice. I have to have a discipline because I yeah. can go off course. Daily practice work for me, meditation, self-examination, having a sort of a spiritual mentor I have. And none of this is religious either. It's just about doing what I think. And I don't like suffering. (laughs) Nobody should suffer. On that great note, Lewis, this this has been a very, very good conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. We're hitting about an hour mark here. I know you're busy and I know it's getting late for you where you are. You're gracious enough to give us this time. Lois, if somebody wants to reach out to you to understand more about rare earth metals, rare earth elements, maybe look at investment opportunities, where can they find you? They can find me on planet Earth, um, ambulating upright. My website is Strategic Metals Invest. And they can go there, download a brochure, or if they want to email me direct and mention, you know, your show, uh, Louie, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com. Perfect. Louis, thank you again. I will make sure all this information is included in the show notes below. But thank you again for taking the time. Really appreciate it, buddy. Thank you very much. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.